Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, March 29th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us part four of five on the history of the Tower of Terror attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that push, spelled backwards, means pull. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? So the whole push-pull thing, isn't it kind of the equivalent of the buttered toast scenario to the effect of you approach a door and if you push it, it's going to be a pull in much the same way that whether or not your toast falls butter side up depends on the value of the carpet you're standing on? (laughs) That's exactly the way my life is. I was at at MoMA this last weekend oh, with uh, okay. Laurel, mm-hmm. and we were going through the Calder exhibit of mobiles. Mm-hmm. And the door to exit the exhibit was a pool door, which mm-hmm. is odd because in the United States, normally all exit doors should be pushed. Mm-hmm. So I tried pushing on the door, and that didn't work. And the woman behind me said, it's a pool door. And I said, oh, because the next thing I was going to try is lifting from the bottom. <laughs> and she actually snorted laughter. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers Joe TV, A Burn, My Wildcats 02, Clint, C. Nikolov, and Nathan F. And longtime subscribers Alex Jessup, Chad R11, Patrick W., Corey B., and longtime friend of me in the show, Kristen Helmstetter. Jim, these are the folks who bought up all of the rooms at Disney's All-Star Movies Resort last week so the rest of us could get upgraded to the Grand Floridian. Okay. Did you hear about this? No, no. Seriously? Actually happened. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, movies was, was overbooked. Mm-hmm. And so Disney started moving people to the Grand Floridian so they could sell more movies rooms because the Grand Floridian capacity was relatively low. So the reason why we know this is we got, a, uh, got an email over at Touring Plans from someone who read one of our Priceline deal emails. And so they, uh, they bought a room on Priceline for, you know, like a hundred bucks a night mm-hmm. at movies and then got upgraded to the grand flow. And they were like, this is the best discount Holy any, anyone could ever get. Right. Like I'm done. I'm mm-hmm. never, I'm never trying for another discount again because mm-hmm. nothing will top this. So yeah. They move people from the movies to the grand yeah. flow. Well, so once you've paid for the movies, right, mm-hmm. the, you, you can't sell anymore. Mm-hmm. So the way to make more capacity at the value resorts, which is what people are buying, mm-hmm. right is to move them to other resorts. So that tells me then that Caribbean Beach and Coronado were also full mm-hmm. or Disney wanted to sell the moderates. So basically they're taking the, they're, they're making capacity at the values by moving those people to the deluxes. You got to wonder how the staff at the Grand Floridian felt about, you know, every other guest walking through the door, singing the theme song to the Jeffersons. <laughs> move it on up. There we go. <laughs> yes, yes. You're very funny. Get to your room. All right. Jeez. We made it, Wheezy. We made it. <laughs> there we go. Oh, yeah. I'm, the next time I go to the Grand Flow, I'm going to walk in and say that. There we go. <laughs> Gonna get t-shirts made. Okay, there we go. <laughs> All right. My work is done here. So All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, big news just coming out of uh, California, reported by our friend Brady McDonald mm-hmm. over at the Orange County Register. 
when Disneyland reopens, there will be no indoor queues, no lines indoors. Hmm. And a virtual queuing system is encouraged by the state. So, Jim, first of all, Mm -hmm. Space Mountain in Disneyland without an indoor queue. Obviously, you put people in Tomorrowland, but the question then is, how many people can you fit in Tomorrowland? And my point here Mm. is that Disneyland is already a lot of outdoor queues. Mm -hmm. It's Mm. not like they've got additional space. So what's going to happen here, Jim? I've been hearing from from folks in the Team Disney Anaheim building about cast members called back and training and this sort of thing. They've actually been doing a lot of, okay, if we... If we did strictly an outdoor queue for this and we came in from the unload side as about the offload, could we do that? So this has been kind of a fluid thing, also based on what's the definitive guidance coming out of Newsom's office? Because it was changing from day to day. This just just came out today. Well, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so to finally settle on this point where it's no indoor queues, it's like, oh. Well, the thing thing that's challenging about Disneyland, again, besides the the fact that there are – there's queues are already outdoors because of the great California weather mm-hmm. is they don't have an extensive amount of backstage space like Walt Disney World does to extend those queues. Mm-hmm. Like I was in Galaxy's Edge, you know, back in December when they were using the extended queues and those were, you know, pushing out towards South Orlando, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know, there's a, there's extensive backstage area around Hollywood studios. Mm-hmm. Disneyland doesn't really have that. No, I was hearing, for example, the tests that were being done for Big Thunder. The word literally came down as like, what are they saying? Is it do we do you stick with the six foot queue or we do we yeah. go into the three foot queue? No, it's six foot. It starts starting off at six feet, plexiglass. Mm-hmm. So everything that we every everything else that we see in Florida mm-hmm. happens in California. Plexiglass dividers between occupants in ride vehicles where where it's feasible, mm-hmm. and no mixing of different groups in the same row mm-hmm. of a vehicle. So you know, like on Small World, every group gets their own row and there's no sharing of rows. Same thing in California. So that, that stuff is going to continue. Yeah. The, the thing that I, that you got to feel for Disneyland about is this. So they're going to open at the end of April with these rules in place. Mm-hmm. Most of us are going to be uh, vaccinated <laughs> by, by June. Oh. <laughs> so, so there's going to be, there's going to be the guy with the rechargeable drill installing the plexiglass and they're going to buy extra battery packs for him to uninstall them you know, two months later. So you're just going to start at one end, finish up, and then start at the other end and take them down. That's that's my hope, anyway. That's the thing. It's absolutely maddening for the folks in Anaheim. But they got to do it. No, so. no, no. I mean, you know, they, they want to open. They want these cast yep. members to come back to work. But now you allow us to do this, and we have to... Yeah. <laughs> we could have been up and running for six months, yeah. you know, with, so. with these exact same things that were in place in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, it's, it's frustrating. I, I, don't, I, I don't think this was... Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor Newsom's uh, uh, shining moment nope. for this particular decision. Anyway, so. other interesting things back in world, mm-hmm. the Magic Kingdom is testing facial recognition for entry. So for the last few months since the parks reopened, it's really just been tap your magic band mm-hmm. and go. And there's no biometrics. There's no photograph for them to compare to. Nothing really going on. So Disney's now testing facial recognition. I'm actually going to go try this on Saturday okay. in the park and see mm-hmm. what it's like. I'll let you know. All right. But here's the, here's the thing. Like, there's a lot of people who are concerned that Disney's doing facial recognition. And let me just say, and I think, Jim, you and I talked about this. Mm-hmm. Disney's been doing facial recognition since shortly after 9-11. Oh, yes. So 20 years. Yeah. yeah. In my understanding, as we've talked about this on the show, mm-hmm. they have one of the most effective facial recognition systems in the entire United States, if not the world. Like, from what I'm told, it's the envy of Las Vegas, 
which has some fairly good facial recognition software as well. Absolutely. Right. So they've been doing it. This is just attaching it to your admission, which I get. Yeah. And I think part of the problem there is there's sharing of magic bands happening mm-hmm. for people with annual passes. And Disney wants to prevent that. It was probably last year, maybe as far out as 18 months out. Remember coming across that patent from Disney to the effect of it was technology within an attraction that tracked your eyes as in what are you looking yes. at? It was a, it was a, uh, I think it was a mood or an occupant um, interest sensing thing. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. Oh, you think combining the two things. Oh, see, I didn't put the chocolate and the peanut butter together, Jim, but you have. If they're now starting to walk this out. Yeah. 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 What else do you do with it? There we yeah. go. So. Oh, so. look at you being all clever. Every so often. Every so often. <laughs> so. We're going to talk about Imagineering again in a second. But first, we're getting related to Walt Disney World. Park hours for April were extended, and park hours for June have been released. Thanks to our friends over at WDW Magic for keeping track of this. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, I'm also starting to hear friends who work in Food and Bev and other cast members getting calls back to work. At this point, Florida's opening up vaccines to everyone April 4th. Mm-hmm. I would be surprised at this point if late summer wasn't sort of normal-ish. And the reason I'm saying that is summer is when Christmas, uh, Halloween starts in mm-hmm. Walt Disney World. And so we're getting lots of questions around, you know, is Disney going to have a not-so-scary Halloween party and a Christmas party? At this point, given the progress we've made on the vaccine mm-hmm. and things like that, I would put the odds of there being some kind of Halloween party at 75% and some sort of Christmas party at like 90%. So at this point, I think they are more likely than not. I'm thinking Disney's going to wait until summer, mm-hmm. June, July. And I still think July is the date to announce that tickets go on sale for these. And of course, some of the experiences will be modified. But I would be very surprised now if Disney's not itching just to do these things again. Oh, no, no doubt. But what's concerning Disney is the news coming out of Germany, you know, the, the resurgence there. You have to understand when we're talking about Walt Disney World, normal means international travel. I know what you're talking about here is specifically about the parks. And yes, you know, we're not talking about necessarily all of the resorts on property or or that sort of thing. But for Disney, it's just one of the things, you know, that our normal is like... Is includes UK visitors, right? That's it, exactly. You know, we love those guys who stay for two weeks and spend all of that money. And it's just sort of like, yes, we're very happy to have our stateside customers back, but it's like, oh, you people in the UK, get on some planes, please. Yeah, and I think I think we'll we'll see that too because the UK is on, on track to have everyone vaccinated as well. Again, once we achieve a certain level of vaccination in the United States, you'll see, you know, the CDC come out and say, look, we've we've effectively achieved herd immunity, and I think the vaccines have shown decent efficacy against most of the variants. Like everything I've seen from the vaccine, say. People who have been vaccinated, at least in the trials, mm-hmm. none of them died. And I think none of them were hospitalized. So it ends up being like the flu. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's about as good as we can get, right? That seems to be okay. So I would say that, again, by late summer, I would expect to see a relaxing uh, of travel restrictions as well. That, that's a wooden table. I'm knocking wood. All right, with lenses, yeah, no, we're I mean, knocking I, wood. I think so. so yeah. right. Well, you saw, you saw how the, uh, the cruise line is now pushing back saying... Because uh, the CDC has a no-sale order in place for U.S. ports through November first, and the CDC is like, "Dude, we're going to be we're going to be vaccinated well before November first. What's going on here?" And and there's some merit to that position, right? But we've talked about on the show how you know they were going to do the test cruises, 
with them tied up to shore. But they still have to, right? According to CC guidelines, they still have to do exactly. Them. And it's just one of these things where it's like, oh come on, when are you going to drop the roadblock so we can at least start to move toward getting back to in business again? Think of like supply chain stuff for cruises. You can't just go out tomorrow and order uh, seventeen tons of bananas, right? I mean, there's it takes it takes a, a logistics supply chain yeah. to get that amount of food to Port Canaveral, right? I mean, it's just it's this. Extended ballet of resources, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, and and they need they need time to do that. Again, we, we talked about this last week. This is why Disneyland's not going to open with you know extensive food opera- no. operations because it takes a while to order ten thousand pounds of hamburgers. Mm-hmm. So, and the cruise line too, especially because they have a very specific schedule. If those bananas aren't in Port Canaveral by five p.m. Mm-hmm. on the date of departure, mm-hmm. those bananas are worthless, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. The ship's not turning around to come back for fruit. No. As I, as I say with my Carmen Miranda headset, uh, standing on the beach in Nassau, running 15 minutes late for my, uh, for my spot on the fantasy. Come back. You know what? Never mind. Don't. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> Archim, a quick question for you. Uh, and this is a broad-based question. What's going on over at Walt Disney Imagineering? And I ask this because Bob Weiss, president of Walt Disney Imagineering, recently updated his LinkedIn profile to be not only president of Walt Disney Imagineering, but president of creative and new experience development. Okay, remember how Disney consumer products became Disney products experiences and or the or what is the batting order? It's Disney Parks Resorts Experiences and Products. Yes. Yeah. So this has been a year where a lot of people were at home and found ways to entertain themselves. For the folks in Imagineering who have predominantly worked in the steel and concrete business, you know, you build ride shows and attractions, the fact that, you know, for a year they'd sat twiddling their thumbs and yeah. they had their audience at home. And for Imagineering, I remember hearing about a report where the, they tabulated the number of YouTube videos of people who had recreated attractions at home. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. it was in the th- millions of views. Yeah, yeah, in the thousands with millions of views. And it's just, yeah. it's one of these things where it's like, okay, we need to broaden our portfolio because people at home. Look what they did by themselves. And imagine if we had had our equivalent of Disney Plus for the parks ready to roll. Right. Imagineering stood and watched how Disney Plus was in the right place at the right time and had the right amount of of product. And And what if Imagineering could have done the same thing? There we go. So that explains Mm -hmm. this survey Mm -hmm. that Disney flooded people with last week. And the question was, how interested are you in each of the following virtual experiences. And Jim, honest to God, mm-hmm. I had to look these up. So the first <laughs> one was Boda Borg, mm-hmm. B-O-D-A-B-O-R-G, which I thought was what happens when Ikea starts making designer drugs for rave festivals. <laughs> Apparently I was wrong on that one, but whatever. Okay. 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 Who knew? Mm-hmm. Who knew? Team Lab Borderless, which is a uh, virtual quest mm-hmm. thing. Camp, which I couldn't figure out what that was. Meow Wolf, which is immersive art. And sorry, and Team Borderless also is, is art installation. So uh, Team Borderless and Meow Wolf are immersive art. Pokemon Go was the other one, which is sort of, you know, virtual quest. And then Bodeborg. So why the interest in these? Is this what it is? It's like we we could give people things to do virtually? Well, yeah. I mean, for example, the real giveaway is Pokemon Go. I mean, the whole notion yeah. of what if during this time where we were stuck at home, but you could still walk out 
in your yard. You know, what if there was the Disney equivalent of Pokemon Go where you were yeah. chasing down? Goofy Mon Go. There we go. Yeah. There we go. I mean, it's just, there's a number of folks in Imagineering who just felt like this was a wasted year. And, and coupled with yeah. the talent that got furloughed, let's not have this happen again. Yeah. Contingency planning, number one. But number two, I think it gives them an idea of things that they could do. So you could do these things at home too, right? Mm. But you could also do them at the resorts. You could. You could. Yeah. You can go back as far as the 1970s. In fact, there was a, a series of projects at Disney called the Disney Centers that were really the earliest version of Disney Quest. People did lots of art. People wrote scripts. There was lots of concepts. And in the end, it's like, and it's going to cost this much. And it's like, you know, <laughs> when you get to the actually opening the wallet part, you know, a lot of these ideas right. die. I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're doing the surveys. I'm hopeful that they get some good, solid info and yeah. you know, get a direction. But it is encouraging to have Imagineering, you know, just again, new experience development. Just let's hope and pray that some of these things actually move out of development into the real world. And I, uh, in referencing this, I go back to a comment that Disney Parks Experiences and Products CIO mm. and my former coworker Talak Mandati said last year about developing augmented reality experiences. And this sort of links into uh, into that, right? Oh, yeah. 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 All right, cool. That makes sense. All right. So thanks to Bruce and Becky and Sam and Timothy and everyone else who sent in that survey. We got a bunch of them over in like the uh, over the weekend uh, all at once. So thank you all for sending those in. Mm-hmm. Here's a couple of uh, quick listener questions. One from Edie in Manchester. Uh, hope this finds you as well as we can be in this time that I wish I'd copyrighted the word unprecedented. <laughs> Okay. My family and I have rebooked our trip to Florida to June 2022. I was wondering if you and Jim have any idea whether the Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster or the Tron coaster will be open by then. The announcement of Ratatouille in October this year, despite being more or less ready now, doesn't fill me with lots of confidence. So, Jim, June of 2022. I would bet money one of the two is open by then. Yeah. We, we should probably throw Harmonious in there, too. So let's assume he said Harmonious in mm-hmm. there, too. Yeah, I'm hearing Guardians is much further along than Disney really wants to admit. I mean, we've all been watching, you know, the work on the canopy for Tron. Yeah, but Guardians is happening indoors. There you go. There you go. And yeah. the key to the Guardians is the ride footage. And Oh, right. And didn't, um, uh, what's his name, Gunn? What's his first name? James Gunn. James Gunn. He actually said on Twitter mm. uh, last week mm-hmm. that he's basically been out of commission for the last year. Somebody, because somebody had asked him like, hey, when are you going to do this other thing? Yep. And he's like, well, let me tell you what I've got on my plate before that. And he actually, he specifically mentioned shooting the ride footage for Guardians of the Galaxy, the ride. He did. In his tweet. He did. Yeah. He also mentioned the Guardians holiday special. So that's, <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah. you know, that's going to be a parody of the Star Wars. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I have not seen the script. I will, you know, yeah. I'll bet a pint of my own blood no, on that no, one, right? No, no, no. That just, you know, can't wait. But yeah, it's nice to hear that even he's acknowledging, you know, got to get this done. Just been regularly checking in with friends at Marvel and it's like, okay, when does James go over to the set of Thor Love and Thunder and do this work? And, you know, the problem is he's working on the Suicide Squad Wait, reboot. Is, for- is, sorry, is Love and Thunder the names of Thor's biceps? Because if it's not, <laughs> if it's not, Jim, I have a marketing opportunity for Disney right now. Wow. Okay. Again, that check goes to Mr. Tesco. Uh, <laughs> 
Can you tell how much? Can you tell me how much caffeine I've had this morning before this? Yeah. This? But All right. It really is a horse race at this point. So let me ask you this question then: knowing knowing what Disney knows about James Gunn's schedule, mm-hmm. do they now emphasize or prioritize construction of Tron? Saying like, okay, Guardians is largely out of our our control. There's parts of it that are out of our control. Mm-hmm. Tron, not so much. I just recently saw a wonderful interview that Angela Lansbury did for the Academy of of Television Arts and Sciences. And she was talking about working on bedknobs and broomsticks. And it was like, said, well, yeah, there was a script. Basically, you showed up each day and it's like, see the storyboard, see that panel. That's what we're shooting today. You know, Angela, turn your head to the left. That's where the the, the invisible pants dance by you. (laughs) With this attraction, the thing has already entirely been storyboarded. So they've actually been doing prototype timing and that sort of thing. Yeah. The finished film is almost the afterthought, Len. Oh, yeah. This particular scene needs to be 13 seconds long and, you know. You and, you and I need to do an entire show on the concept of pre-visualization oh, in, Marvel, yeah. in Marvel movies. Yeah. Like, we, we really should do an entire show on pre-vis because that, that's where the movie's made. It Literally is. Literally before the director is hired, mm-hmm. before the actors know their, before the script is written, mm-hmm. pre-vis has happened and that's basically the story. It's also how you budget the film. Yeah. Here are your scenes with effects. This yeah. is how much, how much it's going to cost. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, also, uh, ED closes with this. I'm from, uh, I'm from Manchester. And accordingly, here's how I describe my meal plan for a day. Breakfast, tea, lunch. But at school, it would be dinner because you have a dinner lady, not a lunch lady. And then tea. Oh, so two teas, a breakfast, and a lunch. Totally makes sense uh, to me. Remember, the, the tea break, though, is 11s. So, you know, 11s is, yes. 11s but that's is. mostly from Lord of the Rings. There we go. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Here's a, uh, a question from Andrew that required some historical research, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. So, uh, hey, Jim and Len, my grandfather, John, was a high school football coach in Daytona Beach during the late 60s and early 70s. He got to go to the Magic Kingdom the year it opened. My grandfather tells the story that on one of his trips, he actually got stuck with all the other guests inside the Magic Kingdom. He says that on this day, the monorail was offline because of lightning, and there were white caps on the lagoon, so the ferries couldn't go. And the road that goes between the TTC and the Contemporary was flooded in the section of road that dips under the lagoon, so trams couldn't go either. I have no idea if you've heard the story, but he claims it's the only time it ever happened. So let me pause there and say, I actually looked it up to see the, to, to see if this happened. I checked the uh, Orlando Sentinel archives mm-hmm. in 1971 and 1972. Uh, I couldn't find anything definitive on that. Mm-hmm. However, uh, we do know that uh, substantial flooding did happen in Walt Disney World during 1971 and 1975. And for this, mm-hmm. we have to thank the 2004 master's thesis at FSU by student William Hightower, who did a study of Disney World's effect on nature. And he says that in uh, page 38 of his thesis, he mentions that the Army Corps of Engineers did a study in 1976 of the flood hazards for Reedy Creek Improvement District because they had experienced once in a hundred year floods more often than they had thought since the resort opened. So here's my here's my sense. The the government generally doesn't send the army out mm-hmm. unless something actually happened, right? We all know Roswell was UFOs. <laughs> um, so in in that's all I'm saying, Jim. Okay. And in this case, right, for the Army Corps of Engineers to do a study on flooding in Reedy Creek Improvement District means that the Reedy Creek Improvement District probably flooded sometime between 1971 and 1975. So I would say, Andrew, that your grandfather John's story is entirely plausible and probably did happen. And uh, Andrew and I actually are going to share some emails back and forth on this. And even the stuff in here, that, like, for example, when he talks about, 
Kate's grandfather knew that, you know, the ferries weren't going because there were white caps out on, on Seven Seas. Do you know what kind of wind it takes to do what, to do white caps on the Seven Seas Lagoon? Well, also, his dad, uh, grandfather tells a story about seeing the white caps. And it's like, you know, I mean, today you can't stand inside of the Magic Kingdom and look out. You know, onto seven right. seas because of the the berm and the elevations that have been done. Yeah, but back then you could. No, remember? that's it exactly. You know, there were a number of places where you know, particularly in an early adventure land when things hadn't quite grown up yet, and likewise right. parts of Tomorrowland, you could have looked out. And we saw this in the um, we saw this in the old photos that people send us. There we go. Right where it's basically cleared land mm-hmm. between the Magic Kingdom and the Contemporary. Yeah. So I mean, again, yeah. again you know, a lot of the story checks out. The only other thing I, I want to add here is that during the particularly busy times of year, remember how when you came out of the parking lot, you'd be in a tram and it would be pulled by this oversized tractor? Yep. During particularly busy times of year, they would do something different. They would actually, because, you know, they, they, the monorail had been overwhelmed, the ferries were overwhelmed. They would also run a tram from, and again, they only did this on a very limited basis, uh, from the TTC over to the Magic Kingdom. They'd run it on, you know, the Perimeter Road uh, Asian Way. Oh, really? Wow. What okay. they found out, though, was that this tractor, in fact, they, they had to, at some point in the early 70s, swap out the tractor that pulled the trams because they found out the hard way that if the road under the land bridge, that that water bridge between yeah. Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake, if that was damp in any... Oh. It, yeah, it's, it's like trying to push a train uphill. No, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly. It, it couldn't make the grade. So on a day like this, you know, where there's been a lightning strike, the monorail's down and there's whitecaps, yeah. you know, and this would have been their only option at that point. And, you know, and it's like, it can't make the grade. You know, it's the road's ways wet. So they're stuck there. What's interesting now is there's actually a contingency plan where were this to happen, what they would do, in fact, I, I've seen the plan from the 70s, they would basically start pulling buses in behind Main Street USA, that, that area yeah. between Main Street and Tomorrowland, and direct guests out there. And then what they do is they would drive the bus counterclockwise around the park. So you'd come out. Oh, going back behind the uh, Grand Floridian. Yeah. Uh, down the Floridian Way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, at this point now, you can walk too, right? You can walk to the contemporary, but, you know. No, you can walk to the, you can take the Grand Floridian Oh, no, 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 no. Right I stand yeah, corrected. Yeah, back then, yes. no, you couldn't. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That, 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 <laughs> what a wonderful age we live in, Len. So. <laughs> so. Have you ever, speaking of the trams, mm-hmm. have you ever noticed how big the tires are oh. on the engines that drive. Well, they have to the be. trams. So those, I think the top speed of the tram can't be 15 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But the amount of torque that those engines generate is is probably enough to pull like 50 elephants, 50 unwilling elephants. I'd even say like 50 elephants who really don't want to go anywhere. <sighs> yeah. It's those things are specially built. So yeah, okay, I can I can totally see that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for the uh, the question, Andrew. Yeah, no, no, Joe, that's right. Oh, Andrew also writes in and says, uh, also tying this into the Tower of Terror stories, mm-hmm. my grandfather went to MGM Studios one night when it was raining, and he did the then new attraction Tower of Terror, not knowing what it was. <laughs> he seriously thought it was a motion simulator. The next day, he came back to the park and heard screaming and realized Tower of Terror was a drop ride, and he said, "Holy cow, I did that." <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> oh, that reminds me of those. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know what? I'd rather not know. 
the, all those stories about the, the families at Hong Kong Disneyland where it's the, the parents and their one child and the two sets of grandparents who, who got online for Space Mountain and because there was nothing yeah. outside this set, by the way, indoor roller coaster, it's like lots of fainted people, you know, as the train pulled into, you know, or the, the, the thing pulled back into the station, so... How do you say, what the hell is this in Mandarin? There that's, we go. That's pretty much what, there the, we uh, go. <laughs> what, what you hear screaming mm. out of Space Mountain <laughs> on opening day. <laughs> All right, great. <laughs> All right, Jim, going along with our earlier story about Walt Disney Imagineering mm. and virtual quests, the U.S. Patent Office just published a Disney patent application titled Artificial Intelligence-Based Role-Playing Experiences Based on User-Selected Scenarios. So the idea here is this, and, and so D Disney will give you a choice for your role-playing experiences. And the four that they've got listed here, or the four things that they've got listed here for your, your quest. The first question is, select your objective. And one of them is infiltrate, and it shows a picture of a castle. Mm -hmm. The second one is question. We don't know what that means. Th and then there's a, you know, three ellipses, three dots, implying that there are more options. But the last one is retrieve. And it's got a, a diamond, mm -hmm. like, a, uh, like a physical diamond, like you'd put in a ring um, on it. The next one is select your role. And the roles are wizard, warrior, then some ellipses, and ninja. And then the next one is select your means, like these are your abilities. Mm -hmm. Stealth, force, some ellipses, flattery. The idea here is that uh, this role-playing experience would suggest some scenarios for you or generate random new ones and then begin your quest. So this fits into what we were just talking about with uh, WDI and, yeah. and virtual experiences, right? Yeah, yeah. So at least they're piling up possible ways to push these stories forward. It's, it's a question now of, okay, you, you got the means. So Yeah, now let's do it. There we yeah. go. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim gives us part four of five on the history of Disney's Tower of Terror. We'll be right back. When we last left off, you and I talked about how when Eisner came through the door at Disney, mm -hmm. he wanted to increase production at the studios, mm -hmm. right? To go from like a couple of uh, films a year to, what was it, like a dozen? Yeah. yeah. When Michael came through the door, of the eight studios that were operating in Hollywood at that time, Disney was dead last. Solid eighth. <laughs> they were only doing three or four films a year. And to be honest, these films just were not connecting with audiences. And so the quickest way to ramp up to where Eisner wanted to be, which was uh, 10 or 12 films for adults, those would be released through Touchstone, and then three or four films for the family audience, which basically would maintain Disney's output that they had prior to Eisner coming through the door. Yes, you could build the sound stages in Florida, but this is 1985, 84 and 85. The park, the park went open until 89. In fact, the earliest they began shooting stuff there, I want to say, was late 88, and they did Splash 2, the TV movie, and Ernest Saves Christmas, you know, were the, the first things that were produced on the lot there. But another way that's easy to ramp up your production is to persuade another pre-existing entity, someone else's production company, to come to Disney to set up shop there and to then begin releasing their films through the various brands that Disney owns. And remember, this was Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures was eventually going to rise up. And of course, you have Walt Disney Pictures. And Eisner, he knew Mel Brooks. Uh, Mel Brooks had actually started his very own production company, Brooks Films, the very first serious drama he released actually went out 
from Paramount. And this was during the years where Michael Eisner was actually president and CEO of Paramount. And you know the movie that, that went out. It was David Lynch's The Elephant Man. That was a Mel Brooks film? That was a Brooks film film. But yeah, okay. they, they chased down David Lynch to do it. That was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including uh, Best Picture. I, rem- I, yeah. I vaguely remember this, yeah. yeah. Did it win? Well, <laughs> no, it actually, it, it got skunked. In fact, everyone remembers the amazing makeup that John Hurt wore in that film. Yeah. And the argument is like, why didn't get that get a special award? I mean, it was amazing. And so the very next year after The Elephant Man got skunked was when the Academy Awards introduced an award for best makeup. Because it's like, okay, well, let's at least it have something that acknowledges... Oh, it separated out makeup from other effects. There we go. So It's kind of funny that the, that the Academy acknowledges its mistake, not by giving, giving a second award, no, but by saying, you know what, we're going to change the way we do things, <laughs> which, which is just like an award. There right? we go. You know. <laughs> next time. We'll get you next time. Okay. So, I didn't win, you know. but I'm the reason why this other thing exists. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. So here's the thing. You know, Eisner knows Mel from the, his dealings at Paramount. Problem is, they've already set up deals uh, for films that will be released through Metro-Golden-Mayer and 20th Century Fox. In fact, if you remember David Cronenberg's The Fly from August of 86, again, a Brooks film. That's the Gina Davis... Um, there we go. Jeff Goldblum. Yep. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, that was creepy. Yeah, it was. It was. But the whole idea is he didn't just want to do broad comedies. You know, he, he wanted to sort of branch out. So Eisner's desperate for an angle to try to get Mel on the lot. And that arrives in the winter of 87-88 when Disney shoots Big Business on the Burbank lot. Starred Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler as two sets of identical twins who get swapped at birth. But the primary set for this, this thing was the Plaza Hotel in New York City. And Disney tried to get permission to shoot at the actual Plaza Hotel, but the property was up for sale at the time. So in fact, it was Donald Trump who actually bought it in March of 88 for upwards of $400 million. So eight years later, sold it, uh, took a $90 million loss on it. I will say, if you ever make it to the plaza, my favorite thing about it is the food hall at the, at the basement. It's absolutely fabulous. It's the corner of what? Corner of 5th and Central Park South, right? Yeah. yeah. Totally fabulous. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, because the property was being prepped for sale, the owners were like, you know, you can shoot the exterior, yeah, yeah but you, we, you can't use the interior. So... Dizzy Solution was to build at great expense a full-size replica of the lobby of the plaza, one of the sound stages of Disney. But once production is over in early 88, it's such a beautiful set. Eisner can't bring himself to tear it down. And also, there is the expense of having built the thing. But it does give Michael an excuse to call Mel. It, it asks him to come over for lunch at the Disney lot because Eisner is a problem. So after a, a fairly liquid lunch at the executive dining room uh, at Disney, and Michael walks Mel over to the sound stage where the big business lobby of the Plaza Hotel is still standing and turns to Brooks and says, if you had this set available to work with, what could you do? And Mel looks at this big, beautiful set, and he immediately starts, you have the staff of a hotel, but you always have crazy guests coming through the revolving coming door. In, right. And it's like, and you know, remember, this is also you know the period where Disney has a huge success in Golden Girls, which it then spins off into Empty Nest. So it's, it's very right. much in the TV space, and it's like, wow, we could have Mel Brooks' next sitcom. Absolutely, let's do this. So suddenly, yeah. mid-1988, Mel is on the lot. He has a production office set up for a show that will soon be called... The Nut House, and that's N-U-T-T. N-U-T-T. Okay. All right. 
a little too on the nose for a title, but okay, fair enough. It's it is it is television in the eighties. Yeah, there's a lot about this show that's too on the nose, but we'll get to that. Right. Okay, so anyway, Michael's got his toehold, but he really wants to seal the deal with Mel, and so it's like, and the beauty of being at Disney is like, oh, you don't just have television and movies to work with. Have I have I told you about our theme parks? This is eighty eight. We are a year out from Disney MGM Studios opening. And, you know, the Imagineers are looking and it's like, okay, if we're, we're looking at this place from a film genre point of view, action and adventure, okay, we're covered. We got the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular. Sci-fi, we got Star Tours coming. All right, we're covered. Magic of Disney animation, don't have to worry about animation. But then there are genres that, that frankly, the park really doesn't touch on. Two of them being horror movies and mystery films. Okay. And I will acknowledge we got the monster sound show, but that was very late in the game. And you'll notice isn't tied to any film that anybody actually knows. So they're looking at, okay, well, this is what we can deliver for the park opening in April of 89, but we will need more additional capacity. What about phase two? And so for phase two, they begin talking about a giant show building that will actually house two sit-down attractions, the Creatures Choice Awards, <laughs> and Ghostwriter. Okay. Oh. Okay. Now, if you want to learn about uh, Creatures Choice Awards, which would have been hosted, by the way, by an audio-animatronic version of Eddie Murphy, uh, who was supposed to be made up like Frankenstein's monster. As Late 80s, okay. As well as the horror movie host from television, Elvira. Okay. Again, late 80s. Wait, she's still she's still active, isn't she? Well, active is, is probably not the word, Len, but she's out there. She's still moving. She's moving and shaking. But if you want to learn more about this attraction, pick up a copy of Kevin Rafferty's Magic Journeys. It actually includes four and five pages that outline the attraction. Uh, they've got... Kevin included all sorts of storyboards. You can see Eddie in his makeup. In fact, what I love about Kevin's book is he actually has a shot of Godzilla lumbering through the Epcot parking lot. Wow. Yes, he makes his way to Disney MGM Studios to pick up his Lifetime Achievement Award. So <laughs> I just love that, that that was in the mix. Now, Ghost Rider, on the other hand, the gimmick of this is it was supposed to be a, a tribute to the film noirs of the, the 40s and the 50s was okay. mostly going to be done in Pepper's Ghost. I mean, the idea is you, you came into the theater, you sat down, when the lights came up, it was almost kind of a rear window situation. You were looking yeah, yeah. at okay. a balcony of an apartment building in New York at twilight. There was a writer sitting at a typewriter. And over the course of the show, you realized he was a mystery writer who was being bothered by the characters of the book he was writing right then. So Fox That's not a bad premise for a show. No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. And, and so Pepper's Ghost Effect, for, for our listeners, it's the thing that you see in the ballroom scene of the Haunted Mansion as you're going by, right? So it's uh, things that you can't see mm -hmm. are projected, are backlit onto a plate of glass and you're looking at the plate of glass. In the yeah, and, but again, they're going to have a live actor on stage who'd be interacting with, with these, you know, Pepper Ghost effect. And I've seen some concept art from it. It would have been really clever. But here's the thing. Eisner wasn't entirely convinced to these two shows which would again housed in a very large show building, approximately where a rock and roller coaster now stands. Very expensive proposition. Yeah. You then yeah. factor in Eddie Murphy was kind of in a cold streak at the time. He'd just done Golden Child and Harlem Nights was looming. So there was a thinking, maybe we don't want to tie a multi-million dollar attraction to that guy. Which meant Disney MGM doesn't have a horror theme attraction. Uh, which is then when the Imagineers went to Mel and said, hey, young Frankenstein. How would you feel if we did something with that in the parks? <laughs> 
you know that one of the gags has to be put the candle back. Well, see, now that's that's what's intriguing about the the design that I've seen. You would have started in the in Transylvania, a village at the foot of Frankenstein's castle. Uh, you would have made your way through the, the village. Eventually, the Frau Blucher would have opened the doors and led you in. <laughs> you know, and be careful. The stairs are treacherous. You know, and it's like, and then from there, you would have arrived at the lab. And that's that's where you would, you would have seen your show. But here was the problem. When Young Frankenstein was released to theaters in December of 1974, it had been written by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks. But... They had, in the years since, had a falling out. As, I, as it was explained to me, it was over what was supposed to be the follow-up to Young Frankenstein. They, they were going to do another black-and-white horror film. The difference this time around was, though, it was going to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where Gene Wilder was going to play Dr. Henry Jekyll, and Mel was going to play uh, Mr. Hyde. And I guess they never got the script in a place where it worked, and that became some sort of bone of contention. And anyway, long story short, Mel was like, no, that would mean I'd have to go to Gene, and I'm not talking to Gene now. That's a shame. It is. It is a shame. Did, did they eventually reconcile? Not that I've heard, but uh, maybe somebody could reach out to Max Brooks. By the way, again, you, you want to talk about weird bends. Uh, Mel's son, Max, is the gentleman who's behind, who wrote the story that the World War Z movie was based on... Oh, the zombie... Uh, really? Yes. Max wrote that. Max wrote that. was that. a good movie. It's, it was a good zombie movie. Yeah, well, that, the whole franchise continues. But anyway, all right, so so we can't get the Young Frankenstein thing going forward, you know, a, a ride or an attraction, that sort of thing. But at this point, Mel gets briefed on the Creature's Choice Awards, and it's sort of like, well, I want to do a Haunted Mansion. You know, I want to do... I don't want to do a sit-down show like you were talking about for the Young Frankenstein. I want to do a mansion. And so... Okay. This is where Hotel Mel comes forward. And the Hotel Mel? So, yeah, <laughs> okay. All right. And so the, the idea that sort of bubbles up at this point is that, that uh, you're now in line. At, there's some sort of event going on at this dilapidated Hollywood hotel. You see these limousines pulling in, but there's really strange things getting out of the limousines. But you get inside the hotel, and you this is where the Creature's Choice Awards are being held. At the hotel. At the okay, hotel. That makes sense. But, again, that, that rather than doing it again, you know, the Eddie Murphy Elvira thing was a sit-down show. This, on the other hand, you would board a vehicle and then travel through the hotel, eventually making your way to the ballroom where the award ceremony was being given. And, and in fact, okay. the idea was that the award ceremony was going to be sort of this attraction's, you know, you've come out of the attic at the, at the Haunted Mansion and you're now in the graveyard, the elaborate set right. piece. But as the Imagineers are working with Mel on this, they said, well, we just did something in the Haunted Mansion that maybe you want to do with this attraction. And they talked yep. about that summer where in the endless hallway, they actually put a cast member in a suit of armor. Oh, right. We've talked about this on a, on a previous show. Yeah. And, okay. and the whole notion of, you know, a live person would leap out at them. And the notion is, what if at a couple of points in the ride, you know, you're going past audio animatronic figures and that sort of thing. And suddenly it's a live person. Someone's, you know, reaching out to you and doing a bit in front of you. And it's like, yeah. now the guests don't know. All right. Is that guy fake? Is that guy alive? They developed this idea first for Hotel Mel, and when Hotel Mel got its plug pulled, it then this is how we got in the great movie ride, the gangster and the cowgirl. 
That's where the idea came from. This is where the idea came from. So That, I didn't know. Look at that. Yeah, so. No idea ever dies at Disney. No, it doesn't. But some concepts don't make it across the finish line. And in this right. case, what Mel wanted to do was very expensive. And then, much in the case of Eddie Murphy with The Golden Child and Harlem Nights, Mel was coming off of a not-so-great streak at the movies. Uh, History of the World Part yeah. 1, To Be or Not To Be, and then Spaceballs all underperformed at the box office and got kind of shaky reviews. Comedy had changed. It since, had. Uh, it had. Yeah. But, you know, the weird yeah. thing is, if you look at the producers on Broadway, that sometimes if you wait long enough, conditions change, you know, taste change. Yeah. But what sealed the deal here is the Imagineers began to go by the set of the Nuthouse, you know, as they were shooting the episodes, and they've got Harvey Corman and Cloris Leachman as the two leads of the show. And it's just one of these things where it's like, it's painfully unfunny. And it's just sort of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Could you imagine if that if instead if instead they had gotten uh, Bob Newhart mm. to just play it straight? Mm. Well, Ugh. that's but again, you know, just you got to have the right guy in the front seat. Anyway, it's about this time that Michael gives up on, on the idea of pursuing Mel and getting him to move Brooks Films production office to Disney lot. And okay. as for the actual Plaza Hotel set, I mean, any of you who ever went to the soundstage restaurant at Disney MGM, that quick service below the catwalk bar, that was, in fact the set of the, the Plaza Hotel. And, you know, they, they shipped it out literally just weeks before uh, Disney MGM opened and suddenly set it up there. And so Michael was finally getting some extra use out of this very expensive set. And then you may remember what Disney did, you know, uh, years to keep that going, that I want to say just two years after that restaurant opened, they rethemed it. So suddenly it was the Beast's Palace at, at, from Beauty and the Beast. And then the year after that, they turned it into the Cave of Wonders. But the bones were the, you know, the Plaza Hotel set. Wow. I don't remember the Beast Castle thing, but I definitely remember Cave of Wonders. Mm. So at this point, they need to build Sunset Boulevard. The budget's been cut in half. Oh, yeah. And now, we're, now we're, we have one less idea, right? Because Mel, Mel Brooks isn't available. Then what? It's important to point out here that Michael Eisner loved working with live geniuses. That was kind of the appeal of, of getting Mel to be on the Disney lot to say, what sort of ideas will Mel come up with? And if we go back to the September of 89, this is honestly why Eisner cut the deal with Jim Henson. You know, to the effect of, ooh, to have Jim Henson on the lot, let's see what he come up with. But it had been exhausting dealing with Mel for a couple of years and then to have nothing at the end. And so at this point, Michael decides, well, I kind of had my fill of dealing with living geniuses and... Do we have any dead ones lying around? And <laughs> did, did, you, did you really just say dead geniuses lying around? Dead geniuses lying around, and which brings us to Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, uh, who sadly passed away in June of 1975, which meant that he could not talk back. And he comes right. into the picture. And, and next week, our final installment of this series, we will get to how we got from Tower of Terror to the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. And more to the point, we will finally talk about how this became... Disney's first reprogrammable theme park ride. Wow. I learned so much on uh, today's show that I didn't know just about the studios. That's fantastic. So much at Disney is intertwined. So That is fantastic. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including the earliest known version of Epcot's American Adventure script, which we did with real actors, music, and special effects. On next week's show, Jim wraps up the history of Tower of Terror. 
You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lennettrainplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be cleaning out Grandma Adams' attic, including a complete set of the Broyhill Brasilia line of classic mid-century furniture at the 2021 Conway Modern Vintage Market, running April 9th to the 11th at the Conway Expo Center in beautiful downtown Conway, Arkansas. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.